Well, take your Bible tonight and turn again to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Tonight we'll look at verses 22 through 25. And there were some handouts for tonight's message. Did anyone not get one of those? Anybody not get a handout? All right, one up here. First Peter 1, and we'll start in verse 22 tonight. Okay, well, I have really enjoyed looking at First Peter together with you. I know Pastor and Mark and I have uh, very much enjoyed sharing um, this privilege of being able to preach through uh, this letter, and it has been amazing uh, just how per- pertinent it is to uh, where God has us um, and really where our culture is, and it's just been a blessing. I hope it's been a blessing to you, and I hope this has been an encouragement. Uh, we're going to just continue going through this letter, and um, I want to give you a little bit of review. I know we've reviewed some, but I think it's really important that we know where we've been and really where we're going. And so if you take your First Peter, the letter of First Peter, and you turn it back to the first page, obviously we know that Peter, the letter of First Peter, was written to what Peter calls exiles. And he calls them that because they were people who were under pressure. They were under persecution. There was some opposition because of their faith in Jesus Christ. And so he calls them exiles, and he writes this letter to them to tell them, here's what you need to know, and here's what you need to do when you experience this kind of opposition. And so he begins in verses 1 through 2 with a a greeting, which might seem like a normal greeting, uh, but when Peter is writing this greeting, he is speaking directly to these suffering, persecuted believers, and he's beginning by telling them there is great hope. And then in verse 3 of your passage of the letter of 1 Peter, he wants them to rejoice in some things, which is interesting. If you're writing to persecuted people, that might not be the first thing that you think to tell them. But Peter wants to begin by saying, as you experience opposition and persecution, the first thing you need to do is rejoice. And the reason you're supposed to rejoice, says Peter, is because of your great salvation. And for the next several verses, he talks to them about their great salvation. He takes them a look, first of all, in the past in verse 3, and he tells them that they have been born again. Do you see it there in verse 3? You've been born again. And then in verses 4 through 5, he then takes them and tells them to look to the future and says that you've been born again to an inheritance. And he tells them that they have an inheritance that is imperishable. And then as he's, he's really anchored their souls in the past and in the future, then he answers the question, what about now? And in verses 6 through 9, he really answers that question to tell them that even the trials, even the difficulties are part of God's plan to test you and refine you. And God is using these trials for his glory and for your glory as well. And then in verses 10 through 12, we find an interesting portion where he says, if you're having any doubts about how great your salvation is, let's consult a couple very important groups. Let's first of all consult the ancient prophets. What did they think about your salvation? Well, they were in awe of it. They were in anticipation, eager anticipation. And then he even says, the angels themselves are in awe at your salvation. So you get to the end of verse 12, and you should be thinking, 
wow, what a great salvation. And that is when Peter then turns around and says, here's what you need to do because of this. Verse 13, now set your hope on this great salvation. Don't cling to any other props. Don't cling to anything to to hold you up during this time of difficulty. They will fail you, but your great salvation, this hope that you have, it will never fail. It'll always be there. So he says, you hope, you keep hoping. And as you hope, this hope is going to change everything. It's going to change everything. First of all, it's going to change your relationship with God. And we saw that the last two messages, that it's going to change your relationship with God. First of all, you are going to be enabled to be holy people, to live holy lives. And not only that, but we saw in the passage that we looked at last time, beginning in verse 17, that not only are you going to live holy lives, but you're also going to fear God. He's an impartial judge. You're going to fear him. But this hope doesn't stop with our relationship with God. Tonight, we're going to begin to see how not only does it affect our relationship with God, but it also affects our relationship with God's people, with the family of God. Hope changes that too. And we're going to see that not only tonight, but also the next message as we go into chapter 2 all the way to verse 3. And then chapter 2 and verse 4, he then starts to talk about how this hope is going to affect your relationship with even people who are not children of God. In fact, he's going to camp on that. And when you get to verse 11 with the word beloved, he's then going to talk about how that works. How does that look? And eventually he's going to say that, that as we live in such a hopeful way before unbelievers, that they are going to wonder about this hope and they're going to ask us about the hope that lies within us. And so tonight, we're going to look at that second portion. We've already seen how the hope affects our relationship with God. Tonight, we're going to look at how this hope affects our relationship with other people. And the question that we're asking as we approach verse 22 of chapter 1 is this, how should hopeful people treat each other? How should hopeful people treat each other? Because that is exactly who we are. We are people of hope. That's why we're gathered here tonight. We're not in this room together because we have common interests, because we all like the same hobbies. We're not here because we have the same background. We're not here because we come from the same area necessarily. We are here because we have the same hope. That's the reason that you and I are gathered here in this room tonight, because we are hopeful people and we have the same hope. And so the question is, how should hopeful people treat each other? And what we find is an unfortunate reality. In fact, it's probably the reason that Peter is addressing this. And that is that even though we are people of hope, even though we share the same hope, sometimes when the church experiences pressure, when we experience opposition, we don't always treat each other well, do we? We don't always do that. In fact, as the pressure mounts, as the opposition gets worse, sometimes we treat each other worse. It's kind of like a family getting ready for a vacation, and they've looked forward to this for a long time. And they've got all kinds of things planned. And then the day before they leave, everything kind of starts to fall apart, you know, because the pressure's on. The suitcases aren't packed. 
Everybody has different ideas about how to go about that. And they start to bicker and they start to fight with each other. They've got a hope. They've got the same hope. But as the pressure mounts, it sort of starts to cave in. They sort of start to fight with each other. And I think so often, as the Christian church, we can do the same thing. As the opposition gets worse, as the pressure gets worse, we begin to lose our love for each other. We lose patience with each other. We grow frustrated with each other. Our disagreements can start to turn to arguments. We can even start to bicker and fight. And it's not over the big things all the time, is it? Often it's over the little things. It's over the color of the carpet. It's over what someone said to me as they passed me in the hall. It's over maybe how someone handles current events. Maybe what someone said on Facebook. And so as these things start to mount, we can easily grow frustrated with each other. And we can begin to lose our love for one another. And what Peter wants to do is tell us in this letter that when the opposition mounts, when the pressure increases, that is not the time to stop loving each other. Because it's only going to get worse. Things are going to grow worse and worse. The pressure is going to grow. And Peter wants us to know that as the pressure grows, that is not the time to back down. That's not the time to fight each other. It's not the time to abandon each other. It's not the time to second guess our commitment to each other. It's the time to love each other. It's the time to renew our commitment to love each other. And so what Peter does is in order to encourage them and their love as the pressure and the opposition grows, is he directs their attention back to a topic we've already looked at. He directs their attention back to their new birth. And he tells them that something has happened to these believers that is going to affect the way they treat each other. And so the question that we're asking is, how does our new birth affect the way we treat each other? And we see the answer beginning in verse 22. In verse 22, we really see Peter introduce the purpose of our new birth. So let's take a look at that. We'll break this verse down together, and we want to discover what is the purpose of our new new birth. What is one of the reasons why we've been born again? Look at verse 22. Peter says, Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth, for a sincere brotherly love... Love one another earnestly from a pure heart. And we'll stop right there. So here, Peter is getting at the purpose of the new birth. And the first thing he does is he wants them to remember the day that they were born again. He tells them in their mind's eye to go back to the day when they were purified, when their soul was purified. Literally, your souls were made holy. And that is past tense, it's perfect tense there. And so what he's saying is that there was a day when your souls were completely purified. And how did that happen? It was by your obedience to the truth. Now, at first glance, that might look like what? It almost looks like work salvation, right? If obedience led to the purification of their souls, isn't that kind of bordering on work salvation? Well, Peter is not talking about that at all. 
When Peter uses the phrase obedience to the truth, he's actually talking about their faith in Jesus Christ as it was revealed to them in the gospel. In fact, other passages of scripture use the word obedience in the same way. Romans 1 and verse 5, Paul says, Through Jesus Christ, we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. So what Paul is doing there is he's saying that the faith that you have in Jesus Christ was an act of obedience. You were saying yes to the gospel. You were saying yes to Jesus Romans 10 and verse 9 tells us what this obedience entails. It doesn't involve baptism. It doesn't involve doing some work. What does it entail? Because, Paul says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And then later on in Romans 10, he says the same thing, but in different ways. He said, but they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? Do you see what Paul is doing? He's talking about obedience to the gospel, and then he turns around and calls the same thing belief. This obedience of the truth is actually belief in the gospel. And Peter himself has used it this way. Chapter 1 and verse 2. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. So it was our obedience to the gospel, it was our saying yes to the gospel that led to the purification of our souls. You remember that day? You remember when you heard the gospel message, maybe for the first time? Maybe you didn't say yes at first. Maybe you said, I'll think about it. But there was a day when faced with the claims of Jesus Christ, faced with the gospel message, you finally, in an act of faith, said, yes. Yes, I believe what Jesus is telling me. I believe the gospel message. And Peter is saying here in this verse that at that moment, at the moment you said yes to Jesus, at that moment, your soul was purified. At that moment, you received a new heart. At that moment, everything changed. And so Peter points them back to this because he then wants to tell them what the purpose of that was. Why did God do that? Why did God purify your soul? And one of the purposes for which God purified your soul was this, that you are called to love. Look what he says. Having purified your souls for... That's the purpose. A sincere brotherly love. Now love one another, Peter says, earnestly from a pure heart. Now there's two words used for love here. One is brotherly love. That's the word Philadelphia. And the next word for love is actually a different word. It's the word agape, which is a commitment covenant sort of love. And it might seem like Peter is saying, you already love each other with a brotherly love. Now step up your game. Step it up and love each other with a commitment kind of love. And that's possible. But I think what Peter is doing is he's actually joining these two together. The brotherly love is a family kind of love. It's the love that you have for your family. A close-knit love that doesn't go away. And the agape love is a committed love. It's a love that says, I will stick with you regardless of whether you merit my love or not. It's a love that doesn't fail. It's a love that endures. 
And Peter is calling them saying, now that you've been cleansed through your obedience to the truth, now love. This is the trademark of the believer, isn't it? This is what we're known for. John 13, 35, by this all people will know that you are my disciples. How? If you have love for one another. So what's happened in your soul when you are purified, when you are saved, it has transformed the way you are to think about each other. It's, fr- it's transformed the way you look upon somebody who is different from you. It's transformed the way that you respond to somebody who wrongs you. It has transformed the way that you care for somebody who needs you. It's changed everything. And it's very different from the world, isn't it? This kind of love You don't find it. It's not indigenous in the world. You're not going to find it out there. Now, our world, they like to talk about love, don't they? Our world talks about love a lot. You see it everywhere. But it's not this kind of love. It's a love that is often self-centered. It's a love that is focused on, on me. Why does the world have so much trouble loving? Why is it that for all the talk that our world has about love, why do we have, why does our world have trouble loving? Well, if we look at verse 22, we see the reason why. It's because the world's hearts have not been purified. Their heart has not been changed. They cannot love because their heart is still tainted by sin. When they look at the topic of love, they think about it not in terms of what they can give and how they can help and serve. They think about it in terms of how they can serve themselves. And we see that, don't we? This is a kind of love that is transformative. This love is the kind of love that can only come from God. It's a love that's patient. It's kind. It doesn't envy. It doesn't boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It doesn't rejoice at wrongdoing. It rejoices with the truth. It bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. It's a love which never fails. Now, how many of you would say right now, that's a kind of tall order? That that sounds like a tall order, right? And that is true. We cannot love that way on our own. And that is why Peter moves on from talking about God's call to an unfailing love to now the the power of your new birth. We've seen the purpose of your new birth. You're called to love with an unfailing, enduring, never-ending love, but you can't do that on your own. And that is why in verse 23, Peter introduces the power because you need some power for this. In verse 23, Peter tells us how it is that you're going to be able to love like this. Verse 23, since or because you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. Here, Peter once again reminds them of their new 
birth. Literally, you've been begotten again. The emphasis is not on us. The emphasis is on the one who begot us, the one who bore us into his family. And this, Peter says, is only possible because of the unique seed. Peter focuses on the uniqueness of the seed, and he uses the illustration of a father fathering a child. It's an amazing thing for a human father to be able to father a child. That's an amazing aspect of creation. But that child, though he's been given life, will one day die. That child, the seed that produced physical life, Peter says, is not going to last forever. It's, it's perishable. But the life that God has produced in you is not perishable. What do we call it? It's eternal life. The life that is right now in your heart is not perishable life. It's eternal life. And the reason it's eternal is because you have been given the imperishable message, the word of truth. Now, what is this word? What's the word of God? We find out at the very end of the passage that this word is actually the good news or the gospel. The day that the good news was spoken to you is the day that everything changed, the day that you accepted the good news. You see, the gospel message is not a normal message. The gospel message is not just an ordinary piece of good news. It is powerful. Hebrews 4.12 says that the word of God is living and it's active and it's sharper than any two-edged sword. You see, the day that God spoke to your soul, that he spoke the gospel message to your soul through another person, and the day you received him is the day his word entered your heart, and that was the day you were born. That was the day you were born again. When he spoke the good news to you, that was a message unlike any message you had ever heard. It was living, and it was active, and it was transformative, and now you have that word living inside of you. Let me see if I can... Explain verse 23 in a very simple way. Verse 23, we could say, says this, that you as a believer have been given new DNA, new spiritual DNA. You have God's DNA written on your very soul. Isn't that an amazing thing? When God bore you into his family, when you were born again, God's DNA was actually written on your soul. You are a child of God now, and that's going to transform the way you think about each other, isn't it? We don't love each other just because we have to. We don't love each other even because we are imitating our father, although we do that. We love each other because we are the child of God. And because God is love. God's DNA has been written on your very soul. 1 John 4, 7 says, Beloved, let us love one another. For love, John says, is from God. You can't love on your own, but you have the love of God. How do you know that? Whoever loves, John says, has been born of God and knows God. This love can only come from him. Romans 5, 5 tells us that God's love has been poured abroad into our hearts or shed abroad, the King James says, into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That's an amazing thing, isn't it? The love of God is now living in our hearts. 
And Peter wants to make clear of one thing, that the seed that is now in your heart is unfailing. Why is that so important? Why is it so important that we have eternal life, that we have imperishable life? We live in a, a world where love often fails, where love is a commodity simply to get what a person wants, where love is dependent on the recipient of love. How much do they merit my love today? Am I going to love them today? The world would say. But the love that comes from God doesn't work like that because God's love never fails. God's love is eternal. And so because his DNA is now written on your soul, you have the power to love. You have the power to love like God loves with an unfailing love. So Peter tells us in verse 23 that you've been given new spiritual DNA. But not only that, in verses 24 through 25, he also tells us that you've been given a very old promise. A very old promise, but a promise that applies to you. Look what he says in verse 24. For, and then Peter introduces a quotation from Isaiah 40, verses 6 through 8. For, he says, all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And then Peter gives his own commentary. He says, and this word is the good news that was preached to you. Turn, if you would, to Isaiah chapter 40. Let's look at where Peter is looking. When a New Testament author quotes from an Old Testament book, often they expect their readers to know something about that passage. They're not just using it as a quick proof text. Often they expect their readers to be very familiar with the passage that they're referring to. And not only the passage itself, they also expect their readers to be very familiar with the surrounding context. Because when they were reading, they didn't have verse numbers. They didn't have chapter numbers. They were just reading through. And so when Peter, he, he looks at this verse, he's expecting us to be able to know what's going on in this passage. So what is going on in Isaiah 40? Who can tell me what, what is Isaiah 40 known for? If you're looking at the book of Isaiah, why is this such an important chapter? Howard? You say comfort? That's right. It begins with those two words, right? Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. And this is after a part of Isaiah where God has been pronouncing doom on Israel. And he turns around and he says, comfort. And then he begins to tell them that the word of God is being spoken to them, that God has a message for them. And he says, this is a message which is unique. This is not your run of the day, run of the mill, good news. This is a good news which will last forever. And so that's why he says in verse six, a voice says, cry. And I said, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass and all its beauty is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades. When the breath of the Lord blows on it, surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. That's the passage that Peter quoted, although he abbreviated just a little bit. But then look what happens in verse nine. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. 
Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not, say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. He uses a phrase in there twice, doesn't he? The phrase good news. In Peter's quotation, right afterwards, in verse 25, what does Peter say? And this word is the good news that was preached, that was proclaimed to you. What's Peter doing there? Well, it seems that Peter is actually taking verse 9 and he is putting that into his own words. He's saying that when the gospel was proclaimed to you, that was a fulfillment of what is said here in verse 9, Isaiah 40 and verse 9. And what we see after this, if you go Isaiah 40 all the way through really the end of Isaiah 40, what we see is a lot of good news. Good news specifically about whom? About Jesus, right? He's all over those chapters. And so what Peter is doing is he's saying the gospel that was foretold in Isaiah 40, the gospel that was prophesied is the same good news that has now been proclaimed to you. So now look back at verse 8. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Peter's point is that the powerful message that you received one day when you received the gospel is the same message in verse 8. The same message that will stand forever. It'll never fade away. The word of our God will stand forever. Romans 1.16, Paul said the same thing. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, he says, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So what does Peter want us to do tonight? He wants us to remember the day we heard the gospel. Do you remember that day? He's reminding us again. You remember when you heard the gospel? Remember when it was spoken to you and you received it? Well, that was the same gospel that is mentioned here in verse 8, the same gospel that will last forever, the same good news that is unfading and imperishable. The gospel is living and it's enduring and it's powerful. And Peter wants you to remember that gospel because that is going to change the way you treat your brother and sister in Christ. Now, Peter did this twice. He told us the purpose of our new birth. And he told us, look back to when you heard the truth, when you obeyed the truth. And then he told us the power of your new birth. And he said, now remember again, when you heard the gospel, when you received the gospel twice, he wants us to look back to the day we heard the good news. Look again at the gospel. It reminds me of a scientist in the 19th century named Louis Agassiz. And he was known for his work with glaciers and fish fossils. And he was a very popular teacher at Harvard. I believe it was during the 1840s. And he was so popular that students would request him. And he would accept pretty much any student as long as he liked them. So what he would do is he would meet with them in a room outside of his office. And he would interview them for a little while. And then if he was going to accept them as a student, he would let them know that they were accepted. And then he would ask them, when do you want to begin? And often the student would say, as soon as possible, right now, if possible. And so he would manage that. What he would do is he would go into his office and he would bring out a preserved old 
fish. And he would put it on a tin pan in front of the student. And he would say, now you observe this fish and I'll be back in a few hours and you let me know what you find. So obviously the student was a little disgusted at first. There's pickled fish sitting in front of them and they had to figure out what to observe. And so they would start observing. And after a while, they would kind of start to jot down some notes. And after a couple hours, Louis would come back in the room and say, you know, ask how it was going. And they would give him their observations. And then the student would ask him, so what's next? And Louis would say to them, look at your fish. And he would leave the room again. A couple more hours This time, the student is starting to to get a little frustrated, but the student then began to observe some more. And the student began to notice some things about the fish that he didn't notice the first time. So he began to write down more observations. And by the time Louis would come back in the room, the student is excited now. And he's, he's telling him all the things that he discovered about this wet, pickled fish in front of him. And so then the student would say, what's next? What are we doing tomorrow? You probably can guess what Louis would say you'll look at your fish. And this often would go on for sometimes three days as this student would return to their fish again and again and again. And every time they would find new things, they would observe new details. You know, I think in many ways as Christians, we could stand to do that with the gospel. Look at the gospel. You might say, well, I know the gospel. I've heard it all my life. I mean, we've been through two years of the gospel project. I think we know the gospel now, right? But you know, we can never understand too much about the gospel. In fact, we need to continue to return to the gospel because every time we return to the gospel, it is transformative. The gospel message is no ordinary message. It's not something you can learn by rote memory and it's, and it's done. The gospel message is something that is powerful, that is transformative, and it actually is living in you. The gospel message is the word of God, which is actually transforming your life. It's powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. So remember the gospel. Look at the gospel. And as we continue to look at the gospel, we're going to discover not only how powerful it is, but we'll also discover how transformative it is. Today, are you maybe struggling to love somebody? Maybe there's somebody in your life and and you're just having a hard time with that person. You're having a hard time loving that person as you know you should. Well, Peter would tell you, look at the gospel. Look back at the gospel. Look at your new birth. What has happened to you? Whose DNA is written onto your heart? And as you do that, that is going to transform the way you treat the people of God. So we asked the question at the beginning, how do hopeful people treat each other? People of hope love each other with an unfailing, enduring love. And how do they do that? Through the unfailing, enduring message of the gospel. That is how We will love each other even when the pressure begins to mount.